I'm Jana Marin, and you're listening to More to the Story, the podcast that's all about creative nonfiction and the power of sharing your personal story. Tell me a story, tell me truth. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I Welcome to episode number six of More to the Story, a show that is all about something near and dear to my heart, telling true stories and sharing them with the world. In addition to this podcast, I also publish a literary magazine called Under the Gumtree, which is dedicated to creative nonfiction and visual art. The magazine is published quarterly in digital and print. And if you enjoy the readings on this show, I encourage you to check out the complete stories by purchasing a single issue or getting a subscription. Your purchase directly supports the work of the writers and artists we publish. Digital subscriptions are $2 a month and print subscriptions are $7 a month. And all that info is online at underthegumtree.com. On today's episode of More to the Story, I am joined by Maddie Walsh one of Under the Gumtree's previous contributors, whose essay was listed as notable in the Best American Essays of 2013. Maddie Walsh is the lead singer and primary songwriter for Ithaca, New York-based, nationally touring, seven-piece, moxie rock band, The Blind Spots. She received her bachelor's degree of English and creative writing from the State University of New York at Binghamton in 2005, and she received her master's degree in the same field from California State University, Sacramento in 2007. Her thesis was a manuscript of poetry, the form that most heavily influences her songwriting. Maddie's piece, Placer County Jail, appeared in the October 2012 issue of Under the Gumtree and was listed as a notable in the Best American Essays 2013. Before we get to the interview, here is Maddie reading an excerpt from that piece. Twice in the holding cell, once at 5 a.m. and the second time at 11. A brown paper bag with two bologna and cheese sandwiches on white bread, a piece of fruit, a bag of Cheetos, a carton of skim milk, packet of Kool-Aid mix, and two mayonnaise and ketchup packets. I ate half a sandwich but couldn't force the rest. Some of the women ate the whole meal the second they rose from a dead sleep. Torres rinsed out her milk carton in the sink and mixed herself some Kool-Aid in it. Bartles and her epilepsy and her Orange County Sheriff's stepfather didn't eat a bite. Wilson slept through it, and when she woke, was madder than hell that she hadn't been given a bag. I offered her one of my leftover sandwich halves. Huggins offered her Cheetos. Well, where the fuck is mine? She said to no one. She got up and banged on the glass. Hey, uh, can I get one of them paper sacks full of goodies? An officer brought her a meal. Ah, fucking bologna? She banged on the glass again, and the officer appeared. Hey, I don't want fucking bologna. You got any peanut butter and jelly? She flashed him a lunatic smile with all of her teeth. She and Tori shared the same sense of humor and appreciated each other in a cellmate kind of way. They fed off of each other's surliness and made one kind of joke. I think if I ended up in that cell with them tomorrow instead of at that time, I'd know just how to laugh with them. But I was younger, more frightened and alone, and I felt so far away. I kept thinking about human evolution and my dad's use of the word underbelly, which was a nasty way to think. And I kept thinking about how it must take a certain kind of person to work in a jail. 
Placer County Jail anyway, which one woman explained was way worse than the prison she'd visited where they had TVs and telephones in the cells. I studied the eyes and body language of the people in uniform, and I kept envisioning some previous epic failure sometime much earlier in their lives, whether it was in sports, socially, romantically, or under the watch of careless parents. Each one seemed broken and hardened like a beaten dog, which in a different way was a lot like the women in the holding cell too. Most of those guards were probably teased in high school for being short or poor or awkward, or maybe they moved around too often to make friends. Whatever it was, I couldn't imagine how it would be possible for any of them to go home and be gentle with their children, that they could have wives or husbands who they made love to and whispered with, that they shared recipes with neighbors, tended to gardens, listened to soft rock, mixed wet food for their pets, and let them sleep on their feet. There were prereqs for this job. The cell was small, but much cleaner than the holding cell. There were bunk beds, and someone small was sleeping on the bottom bunk. There was the same cold steel toilet attached to the sink, a small desk with a steel stool, and no ladder to get to the top bunk. I climbed up the stool and the desk like they were steps. I didn't take my orange duck shoes off. I didn't put the sheet on my bed. I unwrapped everything in my bundle, looked it over, then bunched it all up and put it under my head as a pillow. I lay down on the thin plastic mattress and closed my eyes. I had just begun to doze off when a funny little brown face popped up next to mine. Who's up there? She asked in a scratchy voice. I said, hi. Oh, she said and smiled. She lay back down. What's your name, dear? She asked after a minute. I'm Maddie, I said. Maddie, that's cute. I could tell she was smiling. I'm Anna, Maddie. Nice to meet you, I said. Our conversation was sparse at first, but she opened up more and more, and I had a lot of questions. It was noon, and she said we usually got a break at 2. It was 3.30 before they unlocked the doors. All of the women rushed out, of, out into the center of the tank from their cells. Some went straight to the shower, while others turned on the TV and flipped through the channels. A white-haired woman who looked like a librarian began a game of rummy with another woman. It was interesting to see these women without any makeup or access to beauty products. Dark splotches, severe acne, bushy eyebrows, mustaches, and even whiskers on chins. No one smelled good. They all smelled about the same. As one of the tables of women lined up to get their dinner from a cart, Anna affectionately teased an older woman for having a wrinkly uniform. She didn't say much at first, but then looked down and said to Anna, Well, now you've got me all self-conscious, with a bashful smile. Anna said something to her about spreading it out flat on her bed and smoothing a damp towel over it. She had also already explained to me how to take the sheet and knot it at both ends so that it would actually fit over the mattress and not slide off. There was a certain pride in knowing these things, and I got that. I wondered what Anna must have thought about the way I climbed up the bed with my shoes still on, no sheet on the mattress, and just closed my eyes. In the cell again, we talked. She sat on the desk so we could look at each other. She told me she was 41. She really hadn't looked that old when I first saw her with her French braided pigtails, but the more we spoke, the more I could see it. I could also see what a vibrant, free spirit she was, very childlike in that way. She didn't have any children of her own, but said that she had amazing parents who spoiled her rotten, made her filet mignon and shit. She also said that she had a two-year-old chihuahua who she was in love with. We bonded over that because both of us wanted nothing more than to have our dogs with us, whether we were in jail or wherever. She told me she'd been raped, that she was manic depressive, had seizures, and that 16 years ago she'd been partially paralyzed for a year in a car accident. It was a drunk driver who'd hit her, so she didn't drink anymore. 
She told me about a 30-year-old Italian cowboy who she was in love with. He followed her around on his motorcycle when she wasn't in jail, but they'd barely ever actually spoken and had known each other for years. She told me she hadn't had sex in seven years because, quote, guys always want to follow you around with your dick, just chasing you with their dicks, and it's disgusting. She shivered for, for effect. We passed the time sharing stories, and I could only tell that she didn't want to be there the moment they locked the doors. The rest of the time, she was goofy and almost joyful. It's a mindfuck, but very real to know how far you've been locked behind that many doors and to know you're powerless. Anna had brought a couple books to the cell, and I tried to read when she stopped talking, but couldn't. I tortured myself, scratched my head, rubbed my face, picked at my cuticles until they bled, and I peeled the freshest layer of white paint from the wall, a bad habit I remembered from my freshman year of college when I lived inside identical walls, white painted cinder block. I remember saying at 18 to my saucy Puerto Rican roommate who got a faraway look in her eyes every time she gazed into the mirror while brushing her hair. This place is like a freaking prison cell. Look at the walls. We agreed and covered them with posters and fabric and even hung colored Christmas lights on the bottom bunk. Anna and I were tighter friends than Melissa and I had been after living that whole year together in North Carolina, but desperate times. Anna heard me starting to lose it, tossing and sighing and sniffling. They'll call you, she said. They'll call you tonight. I know they will. I was in danger of having to stay the entire weekend because it was Saturday night and there was no bail on Sundays. Suddenly we heard the heavy click of our cell door. There you go, Anna said. They waited a minute, then over the intercom I heard a disgruntled female voice say, Walsh, get your stuff and let's go. Just put it in your pillowcase, she said. It's easier. I scrambled out of bed and almost fell on the way down the desk and stool steps to the floor. While I did that, Anna took a piece of paper and wrote down her address and phone number. I gave her a tight and genuine hug and said, take care and good luck. I thought all the time that I would maybe call the number she left me to her parents' house and tell them what a lovely person she is. Maybe I would even leave my number. Maybe my dog and her chihuahua would play in the river sometime. I never called, though. I signed some papers and gathered my things, and she walked me through, the officer walked me through the doors right to the front gate, topped with barbed wire, and she let me go, simply and quickly, with a half smile. I must have said thank you ten times. I took some of the deepest breaths of my life, leaning on the flagpole out front, staring skyward past the humming street lights. A toad the size of the top digit of my pinky finger hopped onto the cement and back into the grass, just as a mosquito bit my ankle. I waited silently there for my ride home. Thank you, Maddie, and welcome to More to the Story. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's start with, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your writing experience, and how you started writing creative nonfiction. Um, I've been I've been writing, I mean, as long as I can remember, but, um, and, and creative creative nonfiction also, but I, I was really into writing fiction stories when I was a kid, and then I got really into writing poetry, and it wasn't until um, grad, grad school at uh, CSU Sacramento when I got a couple really great professors who got me sort of more into that genre of writing, and so the poetry that I write has always been prose-based anyway, and so it wasn't too much of a stretch to, mm. um, to start writing in that way. And um, I took a couple of classes that I just loved, and I guess that's still, when I do write poetry, it's still sort of prosy. And um, uh, more recently, I've been focusing on songwriting, and the songs have become, the songs are really just stories that come out of um, other, 
other probably like nonfiction creative pieces too. Right, right. So when you discovered creative nonfiction, what was it that you really loved about it? Um, there were several books uh, in, in some of the classes that got me really invested. And I guess it's the that whole process of there's this giant story and there are all these pieces and it's the process of whittling it down until there's an actual um, a story that you can deliver to someone else that will make sense. There's a cohesiveness to it that wouldn't be just randomly spewing all of the details of your life from beginning to end or beginning to right now. Um, and I love that that seeking of the story itself and taking out the details that maybe you're attached to but that don't really apply to the story and whittling it down to something that's um, that makes sense as a cohesive piece. And I loved what other people were doing with it, and I really wanted to get involved in that process for my own writing, too. Mm-hmm. I know. I really find it fascinating, that process you're talking about, finding that cohesive story and finding the story that we can use to make meaning out of our life experience. Yeah, absolutely. So what was the impetus for Placer County Jail, the piece that you just read for us? Um, well, I, I was <laughs> graduate school and um, I'm a musician and I have been since I was a kid and I hadn't met any musicians yet in Sacramento and so I responded to a Craigslist ad as a bass player um, out in Auburn, like 45 minutes away, and I I went out to a bar to play some music. It was the first time I had sung out anywhere since I had been just like nose in the books um, from the time I got to Sacramento. And so I just, I was nervous and hadn't eaten much, and I had a couple pints and I got pulled over, and so I was arrested. And um, I was there for 23 hours total. I was in jail for 23 hours, which is like nothing compared to what a lot of people Right. At that time, um, when I was 23 or 24, it felt like a really big deal and yeah. a really long time. And um, I was just, I, I sort of knew while I was in jail, I was such a baby. I mean, I, I would deal with it completely differently today if that happened, not that it would, but um, I was such a baby. I cried the whole time and um, there were all these like really tough ladies <laughs> there. <laughs> and, um, I just, I just like made it a point the whole time that I was there to mentally record every single thing that happened. Um, as just, I can I kind of a way to like get through it. And when I came home, um, after all that time, I had to like get somebody to come and pick me up and I didn't know anybody in California yet. Um, when I came home, I immediately, even though it was like a crazy hour, I can't remember what time it was, but I just started writing. I probably wrote for six hours and I had pages and pages of all these details, which again goes back to the idea that a cohesive story doesn't, it's like not all of the details, not everything mattered. Um, And I was in a writing workshop outside of college at that time with just a a group of people that I met um, from a couple different schools and it was at a brewery and um, I didn't have any any beer to drink after that um, after that incident, uh, but that was where I started to workshop the piece with them and whittle it down into something that made a little more sense. That wasn't just like, holy crap, these are all the details of everything like horrible <laughs> that just happened to me in jail. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was really helpful to be able to go through that process with some friends that mm-hmm. I had made out in California, and um, then it started to become a story after a bit. So what was the process of writing about this experience like for you? Did you find that it was sort of, 
well, I, sh I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, what was it like sharing this experience with people as soon as you started to write about it? Was it, was it something that came easily to you or? Um, I think it, it was like, you know, a moment of catharsis a little bit just to, just to get it all out there first. Um, mm -hmm. In this particular workshop, we email each other. We emailed each other our pieces before. I think it was once a month or something. We emailed our pieces, and we would each comment on each other's, and then we would meet up and talk about it. So I apologize to everyone. I think it was, I don't know how long it was to start, but I said, hey, I uh, got, got, a, got a DWI this weekend. I got arrested, and so this is my piece for this month. And everybody was really kind and fair. And, um, and I think it was just – it was good that there were other writers um, – very cool people who I'd become good friends with. So I didn't, I wasn't scared to just get that out there. Um, and while getting a DWI, there's like a lot of shame involved and it's, it's built that way. They set it up that way. You know, you have to go to the mothers against drunk driving classes afterwards and then you take your license and there are all these additional fines. And it's really like, it's shame inducing for sure. Um, but it was good to, to get it out there with this group of people and um, then turn it into something that was actually art. And I feel good about it now. It was long enough ago that um, I can talk about it with ease. And, and actually, when other people that I know go through this experience, I can actually share this with them, which is nice. Right. right. So what what is there anything that you would say this experience was changed in you in any way or like you know I don't want to be as trite as being as asking like okay so what was the what's the moral of the story what's the lesson that you learned but um I often feel that writing about experiences that are were you were using that idea of the shame inducing like it's definitely experience that in our culture is kind of conditioned to be like we don't talk about it we don't share share an experience like this and so having the experience and then sharing it and having it published um, ultimately how has that affected you as a person and, a, and as a writer um, I think it was a really valuable thing for me to go to do to go home you know as soon as I got home and just write it all down um, and actually getting it out there has been there, there isn't any shame for me in this story at all, and I'm not like a recovering alcoholic. I, it's like I didn't. Oh my God, I went home and I never had another drink again. It was just, you know, it's like a moment of of reflection for sure. But then after that, it was just kind of like, all right, well, this is something really shitty that happens to a lot of people, and um, I definitely made a mistake. I'm not saying that I didn't, but it was, you know, it's like a good thing to be able to just get out there into the world. And I don't know that there's a moral to the story, but there is like, there's a shared, how do I put this? There's like a feeling that I can pass on to other people. I, I did have people go through this similar experience after I did. And um, being able to just let them know that you're not like a terrible person, even if it's somebody who has a problem, you know, you're not like a terrible person. You will absolutely get through this. And, you know, here's this piece of art that came out of an experience very similar where for months, you know, there was a lot of those negative feelings and all that shame associated with what had happened. Um, and then, you know, like the money and the lawyers and all this stuff, it's, it's kind of, it's a big deal for a reason. I'm not making light of it. Um, but it's, 
it's good to have gotten it out there. And actually the story itself um, must have resonated at least to some degree with enough people that it, it became published. And um, so that to me, that feels really good. It was a, it was a terrible time and I, I went ahead and wrote about it instead of just pushing it underneath and, and not ever talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'm happy to be able to have this piece and like it, it was a way of getting through it for me, but I turned it into something that speaks to other people mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. actually a good feeling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. And when I read it, I definitely got this sense of, oh, here is a look into an aspect of life and world experience that most people don't experience and don't see. I mean, the lives, the, the women that you write about and the way that you characterize them and portray them, it's definitely like, okay, this is, these are people that are marginalized. These are people who, um, who don't get the attention that just mainstream upper, you know, middle upper class folks get on a regular basis. So, right. which is interesting because now that Orange is the New Black is on the <laughs> Netflix, it's like, oh wow, it's it's totally out there in the public eye. But, um, you know, uh, Genji Cohan is doing amazing things to raise awareness about all of these like issues within the prison system especially um which is not something that was on my mind at all at the time but it's kind of interesting to go back after having just finished the most recent season to go back and and uh, revisit this story because there are elements of that especially like moments where I walked out into a room full of women that were acting like they were at summer camp or something like that it was just like this is a normal place to hang out and socialize and be with other people and um, that was so bizarre to me, right, but I guess right. the show does the same sort of thing that show, you know, it shows, uh, these women being a part of like sort of a, a little family. It's right. not their chosen right. family. It's not where they would like to be, but, right. um, it is interesting that it can become a community. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask you about that. If you watch the show and if there were any accurate similarities between your experience and, and what they dis- what they portray on the show. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't there for long enough to really get a major sense of it. I was just a really scared kid. Right. But, but absolutely. I mean, the women, like, you know, they, they were just very friendly with each other. They were joking, which really speaks to the human element. You know, that's like even, you know, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, people need to laugh and people need to find friends and be around other people and just do like normal human things together, cry, um, braid each other's hair. There was just a lot of like regular um interactions that I, I thought was kind of beautiful in a strange way <laughs> yeah no I, I agree I think that is really beautiful um so thank you for sharing that with us what are you working on now are do you still um write this type of um like story length creative nonfiction? Or are you primarily focused on your poetry and songwriting um, mostly songwriting right now. Um, the band that I am in, The Blind Spots, we've been touring up and down the East Coast and hope to get out to the West Coast um, sooner than later. I've been mostly doing a, a lot of songwriting, but um, I don't think I've written anything quite as long as this piece, but I still do write um, this sort of prose often, creative nonfiction. Um, I haven't written a story like this in quite a while, but I have a, a blog that I 
keep up with. And it started as a tour blog for when the band was um, touring. I started, I mean, there's just so many experiences when you're traveling, especially with a group of people and, and you're meeting people and you're eating in weird places. And um, there's just so much beauty. You have to like stop yourself sometimes, stop experiencing it just so that you can record some of it. Um, right, so I, yeah. I've been doing that on my blog, but mostly I've been songwriting. I do a lot of co-writing with my husband, who's the guitar player for the band. Um, and that's where most of my creative energy be, uh, has been put um, more recently. But I still do, um, every time I go on an adventure or a trip or I'm inspired by something, I'll put something up on the blog still. Okay, nice. So tell us a little bit about the band. What kind of music is, do you guys play? Um, we call it Moxie Rock. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> it's like that, um, oh, you know, like gutsy and uh, in your face and um, spunky. I don't know. M-O-X-I-E is a word that I first came across by way of um, uh, William S. Burroughs, I think. Mm. Um, but it's it's basically we i'm the lead singer and it's all original obviously i'm this you know songwriter with my husband and um it's kind of indie pop rock i guess okay, okay. yeah that's sort of what we do and um we've been together almost seven years wow. and so we're just starting to do some longer tours and we just released um our third studio album called rhizomatic and we have music videos out and all of that stuff so i'm pretty much pursuing music full-time now oh, awesome oh. congratulations you know, it's been a long time in the works, so yeah. I have to be doing this nonstop now. Yeah, that's a big deal. I think it's a big deal when, when you reach that place where you can pursue your creativity 100% full-time. Yeah, it's it's been really rewarding. Um, we've had, you know, to take some steps away from uh, normal things that people who work normal jobs can have, like we, you know, are renting out our house that we own right now so that we can afford to be on the road. Um, and we're traveling quite a bit. So um, they're all sacrifices that I'm happy to have made because this is exactly where I've been working toward for quite a while. Right. Awesome. So uh, where where are you? Where are you now? Where are we connecting with you? Um, I'm in Ithaca, New York. Okay. Sort of where we're stationed um, when we're home. And we spent a good part of the summer here because most of us have homes here um, and family here. So um, that's where we are at the moment. And then we'll be, t tonight we'll be in Syracuse, New York. And then Saturday we go to Delaware. Um, and we've just been all over in this sort of general region um, until mid September. And then we start traveling south again. Okay, very good. Well, tell us where folks can find you online. Um, so the Blind Spots website is just theblindspots.com, and I have all of my lyrics up there, as well as the songs and the videos. Um, and I have a blog also, which I think is called is Mad Moxie, M A D D M O X Y dot blogspot .com. And so I've been putting things up there. Um, I have a Facebook page for both my, you know, my personal stuff and for my um, music. And you can find uh, the music page. It's just Maddie Walsh, M A D D Y Walsh. And um, that's where I am. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thanks for being here and for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. That was Maddie Walsh, lead singer of The Blind Spots. You can visit her and the band online at theblindspots.com or visit Maddie at madmoxie.blogspot.com and find all those links in the show notes for this episode at moretothestorypodcast.com. 
Next time on More to the Story, I talk with an Under the Gumtree contributor about postcards and writing short, short nonfiction. To subscribe to this podcast, go to iTunes.com slash more to the story. And while you're there, leave a review. I love feedback. I love hearing from you and it helps with the ratings. More to the story was produced out of my home office in Sacramento, California, with technical and audio support from my brother, TJ Santoro. Jeremy Marin, yes, my husband, he wrote and performed the theme song. You can find us online at moretothestorypodcast.com. Follow Under the Gumtree on Twitter at Under Gumtree. I'm Jana Marlies Marin at Just Jana on Twitter. Jana Marlies everywhere else. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of More to the Story. Tell me a story. Tell me truth. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. Star.